This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Would you take your copy of the Word of God if you have one with you tonight? Hope that you will always bring it when you come here. And turn to the Gospel of Luke tonight and get chapter 12 opened up in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you can look at somebody uh, near you that has a copy of the Scriptures. To our friends who are watching online, I hope that you can gather your busyness around you in your home, in your family room, den, uh, living room, wherever you may be. Uh, listening and uh, be able to take a copy of the scriptures as well and uh, I hope that I know it's sometimes hard when you are uh, in a different setting but do the best you can to follow along and we thank you for doing so stay with us if you would please you know the thing I enjoy about the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John is that it gives to us the life of Christ when he was here on this earth Christ meaning the sent one the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. He was sent to this earth and he lived among men. And you think about what he did when he left without kicking and screaming, without clinging to his throne in heaven, he willingly came to this sin-infested and controlled world to save mankind. He came and was born of a virgin. He was born to eventually die. Someone has likened it unto the, the, uh, the illustration of a, a deep sea diver who would uh, put on all of the uh, uh, paraphernalia that would be necessary to dive into the deep waters of, a, of an ocean bed and to go down deep enough into the murkiness of the mud and, and whatever is down in the bottom of the sea that he's swimming around in to look for some treasure. And as he gets down in there, it's dark. It's, it's ugly. He left, he left the sunlight above, the, the illustrator was saying, and he left the sunlight above to dive down in the depths of the darkness below. And he came back up carrying with him something that was a treasure, something that he located down in the murk below. Jesus left the brightness and the beauties and the praises of angels and all the glory of heaven to come to this earth to save you and me, to rescue us. You say, Mr. Preacher, I don't know what you're talking about, to be rescued by the Lord God. I've heard that talk before. I don't know what it means. Stay with us, whether you're in this room or watching online. And the thing I love about the four Gospels that Matthew wrote and Mark wrote and Luke wrote and John wrote gives us stories and they give us encounters, <laughs> conversations, miracles, teachings that Jesus did. And I'm one that loves to just sort of jump into the story and picture myself being a part of it. I said it yesterday, use your imagination. I call it your sanctified imagination. Jump into it, picture yourself there. It might be easier to do that on a Sunday than it is on a Monday night after a wearisome day of work or school or busyness at home or wherever you've been. So work at it tonight. What we're about to read here in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. We're going to read 
a conversation that takes place. It's not a long conversation. It's actually a plea that a man makes of Jesus. He makes a plea of him. Jesus hears his plea and he turns and he speaks back to him. And that's the end of the conversation. Just that little brief plea of a conversation. Right after that, Jesus then states a principle. That is, he, te- he says, now let me teach you folks something. And it's based upon the conversation he just had with this one individual. So you've got a plea. Then you've got a stated principle. And then to ramify it, there to clarify it, there to uh, give emphasis to it, Jesus gives us a parable. Now, what's a parable? Well, it's an earthly story that has a divine heavenly meaning behind it. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach the folks in that day, to teach us in our day. And I want, us to, I want you to see it. We're going to start in verse 13, but let me, let me draw attention to the fact that in the previous two verses, Jesus teaching his disciples said that there's going to be times and days in which you'll be brought before synagogue rulers. This would be sort of like uh, judges and court officials. And he says, and unto magistrates, again, courtroom settings. And he says that there in verse 11. And, and, and powers, that is again, authorities. So he's talking about, he's talking about uh, secular judicial systems of that day. And as a result of his teaching on that, we step into verse 13. Are you there? A man overhearing that says, I've got a judicial issue. Let me bring it up. He says in verse 13, and one of the company, now there was a large crowd. Let me just say that at the beginning of chapter 12, the multitude that was following Jesus, are you ready for this? They said it was innumerable. Now that's incredible when you think about the fact that when Jesus fed the 5,000 men, they somehow another figured there was about 5,000 men, and of course all their families, who knows how many Jesus really fed with two loaves and five, uh, five loaves and two fishes. And this crowd, being as large as it was, it was without number. They couldn't number it. And then it says, one of the company. In other words, Jesus paused, and so somebody jumped up and spoke up. It says, and one of the company said unto him, Master, that is, Master, Teacher, Rabbi, Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, sir, who made me a judge or a divider over you? He goes, I'm not a a legal judge. I'm not an arbiter. I'm not a lawyer. No. In other words, he was saying, take your issue to the courtrooms. It's a legitimate concern. Take it to the court. End of conversation. Now here comes the principle, verse 15. And he said unto them, that word them is, is all those within earshot of him, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. End of principle. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He's talking about a farmer. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow 
my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this whole account, Jesus gives us a masterful type of teaching, incredibly so. And it's as applicable today as it was in that day. You know, all of us probably had times and moments in our life when growing up when, when a teacher, or probably more importantly, our parents told us, would you quit acting so silly? Quit acting goofy. Cut that out. You're acting the fool. Now, some of you, I have discovered that in most churches, there's usually somebody who is the resident nut in the church family. Now, don't look at anybody right now and say... He's talking about you, you know. And some churches, I might add, are blessed with more than one. I will say that for sure. They're just funny. They're just fun to be around. And they, and they, uh, they, they, uh, they do some things that uh, are uh, humorous and, 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 they're, and they're just a, a joy to be with. But sometimes that funniness and that goofiness and that silliness could, uh, sometimes I guess it kind of goes a little too far and, and in some cases gets them in trouble, especially when they're a young person or a child and, and in, in the other room with uh, Pastor Brown and so forth. I mean, there's, there's, you know what I'm talking about. We've all been there some way or another. I was uh, at one time when, when I was a kid, I was about 13, I believe it's when I was 13. And, uh, and I was hanging out with a bunch of my buddies. And there was, I don't know, five or six of us. I don't know, several of us. And we had uh, some fireworks. Okay, do I even need to go further into this story? <laughs> Thirteen fireworks. Somebody's going to get hurt, okay? I mean, oh, let me add one more thing. No adult supervision was around. Not a, a good situation. Well, we were doing all kinds of things, lighting off rockets and putting a little bottle rocket in a bottle and lighting it, you know, and taking Roman candles and, and aiming it at people and, and, uh, and just uh, having some fun and things that you ought not do. Do not do this at home. Do not at all. I guess at some point we got a little bored with the regular setup of things and somebody in our crowd, you know, again, when you're 13, a lot of things are not clicking upstairs, you know, and if you're 13 tonight, uh, you probably didn't get the joke anyway, but anyway, <laughs> don't be offended. Yeah, somebody in our crowd decided, hey, wh- hey, why don't we take these firecrackers and, and, and we'll just hold it in our hand. Wrong. And then we'll all together at the same time, everybody light your firecracker at the same time, and we'll see who'll be the first one to get rid of his firecracker. Okay, that is just dumb, 
Okay, I mean, you just, I mean, it's dangerous. It don't, it's just, it, and people have been hurt, and so do not do this. And, but we, as, as one person, we all said, hey, yeah, yeah, let's all do that. And so there, and on second point, those little wicks, those little fuses, they, they vary in length, and some of them go real fast, some are real slow, and so it couldn't have been a fair contest anyway, but, you know, we decided to do it. And so there we stood, and, uh, and so <laughs> all together we saw, Somebody count it off. One, or three, two, one. If you had videotaped us, I'm sure that you could have turned around and watched the video of that whole account and put it on slow motion. And as we tossed the the firecracker away, I'm sure the firecracker was just uh, half a centimeter away from some of our hands because honestly, we were just trying to win a contest. Goofy and foolish. And we, we'd get rid of it because we'd walk away with, uh, you know, black stuff on our hands and whatever little hair we had on our hands was scorched and eyeball hanging out. I mean, it was not smart. A guy could say, yeah, yeah, but I won, you know. Okay. I have a, I have a pastor friend who was a youth pastor for several years, and uh, I, I, love, uh, I love that crowd. And uh, he told a story about how one day, he was, it was during the week, he was walking through his auditorium, and the church that they had had a balcony. Now, the auditorium was empty. He was just trying to save time and go from one place in the, in the building to another. And as he walked through the building, he thought he heard somebody talking. So he stopped and he turned. And up in the balcony were two of teenagers that were in his youth group. And one of them was on the banister railing that is to keep you in the balcony. He was up on the banister railing doing a tightrope act, trying to get from one side to the other. And his... I guess you'd call him a friend. I'm not sure, but the other guy that was with him was saying, you can do it. You can do it, you know, like he was at SeaWorld. <laughs> you know, do it. You can do it. And the guy was doing this. My youth pastor buddy wanted to scream, but he was afraid that if he made too much racket, the guy would say, what? And, and fall, and, and he'd be held responsible, and the guy would get hurt. So he just casually walked down the aisle slowly. Well, the guy... <laughs> The guy on the banister saw movement coming, and so he just stops. And he turned and waved, like everybody does this, you know. It's kind of a normal event. And my youth pastor friend said, what you guys doing up there? And the guy said, oh, just uh, walking around, you know, (laughs) hanging out. He said, can I talk to you a little bit? And he said, sure. They stepped off. He stepped off and they came down the main floor. He said, I, I wanted to take them by the neck and say, are there other areas that you've lost your mind in? Or is this the only area that you have gone crazy? We've all done some things that would be considered foolish. And lived to tell it, maybe laugh at it and say, I can't believe I did it. And if my kid ever does it, I'll be all over him or her. I'll tell them what dumb, foolish activity it was. You know, we've done some foolish things and we've been told we're acting the fool and we can laugh about it, but would you look at verse 20 with me again? 
God is the one speaking. Jesus quotes him here. He says there in verse 20, But God said unto him, that's the farmer, You fool. Now listen carefully. When God calls somebody a fool, he's not laughing. This is a serious designation. This is a serious statement. Mr. Farmer, you're a fool. Okay, time out. Why did he say that? Well, we've got to rewind the whole account and get ourselves caught up to speed. We've covered most of it, but let's get back to the, to the beginning of it. It started with this brief little plea of a man who approached Jesus and as if he, it's as if he said, okay, you just brought up the legal system and, and standing before uh, the courts and magistrates and so forth. Would you make my brother divide the inheritance with me? He won't give me my portion of the inheritance. Now, his brother had to be there because Jesus' response in a minute refers to both men. He, calls, he says you, and it's in the plural, so he's talking to both. So, so what is this man saying? He is saying, my brother, who obviously was the older of the two, who was responsible for whatever they had inherited from the death of their father, the older brother was supposed to receive double portion, uh, or, or a, a two-thirds two, uh, of the inheritance, and the younger one was supposed to receive a third. And he said to Jesus, Hey, you, you, you help people all the time. Would you make my brother give me my portion of the inheritance? And that happened all the time. People would say, would you heal my, my sick friend? Uh, he, he needs healing. Would you please free this person of the demon that's within them? Oh, God, would you take care? Jesus, would you take care of our, uh, of our fevered uh, mother? I mean, could you just be here to help us as much in, in any way you can? And people and Jesus would receive them and take care of them. He'd feed them. He would heal them. He would be there for them. But did you notice what Jesus said to the man? He said, nope, I'm not a lawyer. Well, Jesus, you're, you're not a medical physician either, but you, you take care of people who are physically ill. You're not a, you're not a cook or a chef to, to feed people, but you feed people who are hungry. Why are you saying, I'm not a judge, I'm not an arbiter, I'm not a divider over these things? Well, what is the issue? Well, he gives the answer in the statement of his principle, verse 15, look at it. Jesus turns to the crowd and he says to everybody, he says, I, I, I take heed. In other words, make note of this. Don't, don't miss what I'm about to say. This is important. And then he says, and for double emphasis, beware. I mean, just like if a rattlesnake came near you. Uh, a vicious dog or something that could harm you, we would say, watch out, look out. That's the intensity with which Jesus is speaking. Beware of what? Covetousness. We don't even see that as a viper that can cause problems most of the time. And he says, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now, you said, but Morris, what about this conversation? I don't know this scripturally. I don't know that Jesus did this. I'm again just reading between the lines, but I almost sense that when Jesus was speaking to everybody, he said, folks, hey, listen, listen, listen carefully. Watch out, take heed, beware of a, of a terrible sin of covetousness for, I think he may have looked at the man, maybe looked at both of them. <laughs> a man's life is not comprised of the things 
which he possesses. In other words, Jesus could see beyond the man's request. He could see his heart. He could see his heart's condition. And what was it? It was a covetous heart. We'll get back to that word in a minute. It's a word we don't ever use in our daily vocabulary, but I'll get back to it in a minute. Well, I promise. And then for clarification, Jesus says, okay, folks, let me tell you this story about a farmer. He was a well-to-do man. He was a good man, and, and he was a successful farmer. And he went outside one day, and he looked at his land, and he could tell, look at my grain. Oh, man, look at what's being grown. This, this is incredible. I've got an abundant harvest. I've never had such a harvest. You know, a farmer sometimes works hard in some years, uh, it just doesn't come forth like it, like it would in the past or he just gets an average harvest. But on this, this particular account, this farmer says, look at this, I am, I am set for life if I take care of this. And he said, oh, then he looked at his barn. Now Jesus is telling this story. He looks at his barn and he says, okay, what I bring in to live off of and then sell to a few people, I'm going to have a whole lot left over. I can't just leave it outside because of the, the, the inclement weather and everything else will, will destroy it. I've got to keep it in a safe place. My barn's not big enough. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down this barn and I'm going to build a bigger barn and, and, and maybe even more than one and I'll keep it in there and everything will be fine. And then in time when other people are running short, I can sell what I've got in abundance. Man, I am set. And this is what he said. Jesus said, the man said, I am going to be able to just eat and drink and have the time of my life. Now, you say, Morris, can you tell us what those words mean? Yes, I can. I've, I've tried to dig into the word eat. You may understand the word. It means eat. That's all it means, all right? You say, okay, okay, yeah, but well, what about drink? Is that drinking bad stuff, real bad stuff? It means drinking liquids into taking it in the waters and the and the and the fruit of the vine and anything else that people were used to drink he was saying i'm not i'm never going to be short of any of that and then being merry you say that's why god called that farmer a fool because you're not supposed to be merry that is not true at all you say well why did why did God turn around and Jesus tells his story and he says that he told that farmer, you're a fool. And that's the question I want you to ask. It has nothing to do with the fact that he was going. All right, you say, I know it's because he was rich, wasn't it? No, friend. Jesus had rich friends. That had nothing to do with it. Now, honestly, uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were probably quite wealthy. They took care of Jesus and his disciples. They were wealthy. There were probably some other people who followed him who had some wealth. Hey, Abraham, Old Testament, was a wealthy man. Uh, uh, there are other wealthy people in the scriptures. Uh, David, the king, he was wealthy. I could go on. That has nothing to do with why Jesus, or why God called this man a fool. You say, it was because he was, he was braggadocious. He said, I'll tear down my barn and I'll build a bigger barn. He was being a good businessman, being a good steward of what he had. That is not it at all. You say, well, well, then what is it? That's what I want you to ask. Because you see, folks, if we can find out why God called this farmer a fool, now come up close to your Bible and listen. Maybe we'll find out that God calls us foolish for decisions that we make. 
and we don't even see it happening. You say, well, what did he do? All right. I told you we'd get back to this. He called him a fool because, first of all, he was covetous. Now, the word covetous is a word, again, that we don't use all the time. What does it mean? It means an unsatisfied itch for more. You ever had a little mosquito or something uh, to bite you and, you, and you're going, yeah, it just, you know, it just, it just itches and you have to scratch it, you know. And then, then you realize, uh-oh, man, I'm just scratching it way too, uh, okay, all right, no more, no more, no more. I'm not going to scratch it anymore, you know, that feeling. And that's all you can think about. And the whole time is just saying, scratch me, scratch me. And then you get kind of cute and you kind of go around it and, uh, and everything to try to hit the nerve endings around it and so forth. Our covetousness is the constant itch for more. Oh, you say, okay, the itch, the itch for more money. That's not what I said. Oh, okay. The itch for more stuff that money and wealth can purchase. That's not what I said. Well, you say, well, what are you saying? The itch for more, here we go, fill in the blank. That which is a lack of satisfaction away from the Lord. Would you look at verse 17? This farmer, it says, and he thought, the word thought is written in a continuous frame, okay? It is something that was continually with him. Not only was it continuous, are you ready for this? It was consuming. It was just all he could think about. Man, I got, a, got all this grain. This is incredible. This is wonderful. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to build a bigger barn. I got to get onto this and, and protect what I'm going to bring in in my agriculture. This is going to be super. I mean, this is great. I'm going to have the time. I'm going to be able to get, sell all this when people need it. And, and it'll be a help to other people. And I'm going to have years and years ahead of me. This is going to be super. I'm going to be able to do everything I've ever wanted to do, everything I've dreamed about doing. This is incredible. He went to bed with it. He got up in the morning, maybe even dreamed about it at night. I mean, it was a consuming, continuous thought. It was always on his mind. Can I just tell you what Jesus was saying? He was saying God was not in his thoughts. It was about what he was going to enjoy from the bounty of the world that he was there living in. Can I plead with God's people to understand something tonight? Here's a principle that we're being taught. Committed Christians, committed followers of Jesus, here it is, love Jesus more than everything, more than anything, more than everyone, more than anyone. I think I asked this question yesterday morning. I want to ask it again tonight because it bears repeating probably every day of my life as well as yours. What has your heart tonight? Who occupies the throne room of your life? If you'll notice down in verse 21, Jesus said, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not, now he's not condemning being a good uh, uh, person of savings and taking care of your future and so forth, but he says he's not rich toward God. Now, what does that mean? The words rich toward God means to acknowledge God in everything that has come your way. It sounds like this, oh God, you are so good. And like the apostle Paul, he knew how to be content when he had bounty and when he had nothing. It had nothing to do with how much wealth he had and what the wealth could bring into his life. It had to do with his walk 
with his God. And Jesus is saying here that God called the farmer, you're a fool. Because you have placed other things and other events above me. That's why God called him a fool. It was a consuming thought. There is no reference to God, of God in any of this man's statements. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. I don't know if you picked up on it. But there are 11 personal pronouns. I, my, mine, I, I, I. It's all about me. And when a person starts living that way, God is often put on the back burner. And he's not loved. Hear me, he's not loved like he used to be. He's not as important as what he once was. You know, that's the story of our life. We've always been that way. There's probably a room somewhere on the property, I don't know, where a couple of children, where some children are, uh, you know, toddler age or something like that. And they're in a room and there's a bunch of toys. I'm assuming there's a nursery for that crowd. <laughs> and just like their parents, they're probably in that room with their toys saying, Mine! Mine! That's mine! You know, they love to collect all the toys around themselves. And then if the toy breaks, Yours! Then they become teenagers. I want, I want, I need, I need a car. Son, you're 13. I know, but I, I don't know why I'm picking on 13-year-olds tonight. I'm sorry. I need a new computer. I need a new phone. I need some new shoes. The other ones got dirty. I need this. And then we become adults. And it's all wrapped up in getting a nicer this, that. Can I, do I need to name things? You say, Morris, what's wrong with a, a, a nice car, a good truck? What's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Nothing. Nothing. We, we live to get a certain size house, certain features inside that house. We add on to try to make the house something that we've always wanted, something uh, along that line. Am I preaching against that? Absolutely not. Anything wrong with that? No. We want our hunting rifles. We want our uh, uh, technological toys of one sort or another. We want our uh, golf clubs. We want our, uh, we want our, our clothes. We want our shoes. We want, we want this, that, anything. Just fill in the blank. You say, Morris, what's wrong with having those things? The answer, nothing. The problem is not having those things. The problem is when those things have you. And they're kind of the, the constant goal of your life. I gotta have, gotta have, and I want this, and I want this will satisfy me. Jesus saying, beware of covetousness. I don't think I've ever greeted anybody at an altar that said, pray for me, I'm battling covetousness. It's not a word we ever use. But it is a sin problem that creeps up into our life. These young people that have ever heard me preach at a camp know this. I know Pastor Mark does. I don't ever preach in front of teenagers without grabbing a chair and pulling it up in front of those teenagers. And I'll say to those young people, young people, this chair is going to represent the throne room of your life and of your heart. And there's something that is the king of your life. Something, someone. 
And I'll hold that chair up in front of those teenagers and I'll say, uh, what, what is the master of your, what is consuming your thoughts? Who, who is it that is controlling everything that you think on? I mean, what, what, it's not that the Lord Jesus is unimportant. No, no, no. You haven't said to the Lord, get out of my life. I don't want you around. No, it's just that he is secondary compared to the supreme master. And then I'll name things. I'll say for some of you, it's your sports. I mean, I mean, it, it controls everything about you. You love it. Maybe for some of you, it's all of your friends. I mean, you're consumed with pleasing those friends. You want your friends' favor and approval. Maybe it's not a group of friends. Maybe it's just one particular friend, one guy, one girl. I mean, that is that you, you, you read your Bible, but you can't hardly focus because while you read your Bible, you're thinking about, I hope he notices me today, you know. And then, and then if it's not that, maybe it's again, it's your phone. It's about your social media. It is about checking out uh, if somebody, how many people like that little post because that's important to think that somebody really cares what you said. And we're so consumed and we're thinking about all this. And I'll hold that chair up and say, young people, what is it that's occupying your throne? I had a, I had a counselor, college girl, who worked at one of those camps come up to me at the end of the week of camp, with tears in her eyes, and she said, I'm going to do something with you I've never done with anybody else. I said, what's that? She said, I'm going to let you read a journal entry in my own private journal. I said, oh, I said, I don't need to read that. She said, I want you to read just this one page. She turned to it, and she held it up. She, she said, take it, read it, and I read it. And on that one page, she declared that she had fallen in love with a young man back at college where she attended, but that he had consumed her thoughts in a wrong way. And she couldn't focus on honoring God with everything that she was striving to do, even as a counselor at a Christian camp. And her mind was so distracted. And she was off track spiritually, she said. And then she, I went on to read, how can I help other people when all I can think about is him, him, and our future? And she went on to write and she said, he's really not spiritually minded. He's not the kind of man I need to spend the rest of my life with. So today, I'm letting him go. And God, take back your rightful throne. I looked up at her and I saw tears coming down her face. I said, you mean this, don't you? She said, I do. I said, you'll never be sorry. And she's not. A teenage girl came out of a craft shop at one Christian camp. And she said, oh, I'm glad you, ca you came passing by. She said, hey, I want you to see something. She said, I just made this. She had a leather uh, bracelet, uh, a leather work. She had, she had uh, written, carved, uh, engraved, that's the word, onto her leather bracelet. These words, my heart God's throne. She said, I'm wearing this when I go home. And anytime I'm distracted with a person or thing, I'm going to remind myself, no, no. My heart throne belongs to the Lord. Yeah, isn't that good? Teenagers, college kids. What's good for them is good for every single person in this room tonight. 
There ought to be a research and a study in all of our hearts. And you have to ask yourself, am I allowing the business? Hang on. Am I allowing the, the, th- the things that we love at home? Are we allowing, am I allowing the house? Am I allowing uh, my retirement? Am I allowing my family? Am I allowing precious, wonderful things to take over the throne room of my heart? Jesus said, that God said to this man, you're a fool because of your covetous heart. You remember when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Whether he was talking about the fish or he was talking about uh, his, uh, more, than that other, the, more than the love that other people had for Jesus, he said, do you really love me above all other loves? And Peter kept trying to confess and say, I do, I do. And it was as if Peter were saying, I'm, do, I'm not real good at this. None of us are faithful at it. We have been commanded to love God above all things with all our heart, soul, mind, and body. That's why, my dear friends, we've got to constantly be checking our heart to make sure I've not allowed anything to become more valuable to me than my love and service to the Lord. And my heart for him. Sometimes as a couple, you'll go attend a wedding. You say, brother, how do I, how do I handle this? You ever gone to a wedding? Ladies, I know you do. I, I know you enjoy weddings. You love to see the colors and you see all the things. Your husband loves to go to, uh, for two reasons. They serve food after the wedding. <laughs> and secondly, it does something for a married couple. You know, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. I've performed some ceremonies and I've sat out there with others watching people get married. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. You'll see people all over. As, as that young couple are making their vows to one another, you'll see married couples begin to snuggle up to each other. You'll see the wife put her arm inside her husband's arm and just lean over. And then when they are finally dismissed, you'll see them walking out, holding hands. They didn't normally probably hold hands. What happened? They were remembering. Remembering. We did that too. Yeah. No wonder Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, "I, I love your works and your labor, and you've tried them which say they are apostles and they're not. Ephesus, you're a good church. Nevertheless, I do have one thing against you. You've left that first love. And he says, let me command you with this. Remember. Remember where it was when you first came to me. Do you remember the first time a choir special would be sung and you sat there and you go, oh man, listen to those words. That's incredible. That's special. Remember the last time you sang in a church service and, and you were looking at the words that you sang and you said, Man, this is good. And you start thinking of all your favorite songs. You've got 386 favorite songs in the hymn book, you know. You just love it. Now it's like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Remember. Remember when pastor would preach a sermon and you said, Pastor, have you been sitting out in front of my house? How did you know what I needed? He didn't. But God did. Remember. When your heart was tender. Remember when you got on your knees and you said, Lord, I, you've spoken to me. Oh God, you, uh, you've dealt with me. I want to be closer, closer, more, more about Jesus. What I learned. I love what Paul said in Philippians 3 in verse 10. He says, here's my, here's my focus, that I may know him. 
You say, oh, did he just get saved? Friend, he had, been, he had been converted to Christ for over 30 years at the time he said that. This is my goal, that I may know him more than ever before. Jesus said, a man's a fool who gets distracted with a covetous life. Remember where things used to be and come back. That's what revival is. And there's one more thing. Would you look at verse 20? But God said unto him, thou, and in our English it would be you, fool. And actually that word thou was written by the scribes to help us to uh, get the sentence grammatically to feel comfortable with it. It's basically God said unto the man, fool, fool, you fool. Look at this. This night... Thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided for others? You're thinking good things. Now the previous verse said, I will say to my soul, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. No, God said, you're not prepared for eternity. This night, your soul is going to be required. It's going to be taken back. Out of your body, you are a human body that has a living, never dying soul within you. And God said, fool, you're living for as if there's no, I mean, that, that there's uh, all the tomorrows to live in, in, in bountiful plenty. But tonight, you're going to die. And you're not prepared for eternity. He called him a fool because he was covetous. And number two, he called him a fool because he was careless. He was not prepared for eternity from the front row to the back, from one wall to the other for everyone who's watching and listening online. Answer this question. Are you really prepared for eternity? If you're not prepared for eternity, you're not prepared to live right now. For those who know what's going to happen in their eternity and that it's established into a relationship with Almighty God, He's your Father, then that and only then can you learn to really live on this earth. For each day, each breath, you recognize as a gift from the Lord. The sad thing is, people seem to care more about their body than they do about their soul. We exercise. We get strong. Let me see if I can find an example. <laughs> Forget it. Uh, 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 and you know, you see some picture you buy some product of T-shirts or something, and they show you this guy. And, you know, I mean, I mean just muscles. And the T-shirt is just tight as can be. And, uh, I mean, it's just tight on that man. And you say, yeah, yeah, I want to look just like that. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. So you join a, a fitness center. You start lifting. You start working out. And your body just <laughs> never gets there. It just doesn't happen. And after a period of time, you stop showing up for the workout. And, and finally, you get some movement. It looks like a little mosquito bite right there that has just kind of popped up a little bit. I'm being mean. I'm, let me say it, it happens to me far too often. You work out and work out and you see a little improvement and then you miss a week and it all goes back down to normal the way it used to be. And I'm not about to say anything to the ladies. My point to us here tonight is simply... That we care more about our bodies and they looking good and they put mirrors in those workout centers so you can look at yourself and then some 
um, animal comes walking by that's been lifting since he was four, and he comes walking by, and you go, oh, brother, you know. We care more about our outward appearance. We care more about uh, looking a certain way than you do about your eternal soul. This body's going to be gone sometime soon. In fact, the youngest in this room, you know this is true. The youngest in this room may be the first one, the next one to go. We don't know. Every could be the last. You say, you're being morbid. I'm being honest. Be honest with yourself. We don't like to talk about death. You bring up death and people change the subject. We try to ignore the fact that it's going to happen. He told this farmer, farmer, nothing wrong with building a barn. Nothing wrong with even giving it and selling it to other people. Nothing wrong with being a good businessman. Certainly nothing wrong with being a successful farmer. But you're a fool because you've never prepared for eternity. This night, your soul is going to be required. I'm taking it back, God said. And you're not ready. Why do people not get ready for eternity? I think in some cases it's because some people are confused. How do you get ready for eternity? Hey, hey, Morris, Mr. Preacher, it, aren't there several ways to go to heaven? I mean, you know, you got your way and I've got mine. Now, now would you just think with me tonight? Would you just be reasonable? Would you? If there were several ways to know that you're going to heaven, that God would receive you, don't you think that God, the Father of Jesus, would never have allowed him to go and suffer on the cross of Calvary? He would have said to everybody, find one of those other ways to come be with me. I'm not going to make my son die a horrible, painful, excruciating death that explains that he went as a substitute for you. I'm not going to do that. Just find one of those other ways. Be a good citizen. Uh, you know, give to good causes. Be faithful to your spouse. Uh, 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 have a lot more good in your life than bad. And, and at the end of time, I'll say, yep, you're good. Friends, don't be confused tonight. Jesus made it crystal, abundantly clear. He said, I am the way. And I'm the truth and the one who gives eternal life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, the same shall be saved. There are not many ways to God. Only one. You say, yeah, I've heard about Jesus all my life. Okay, okay. Can we take it a step further? It's not a matter of just having a mental assent that he walked on this earth. It's a matter of understanding what he did for you and accepting that he paid what you could not pay for yourself. Why do some people live a fool's life and not get prepared for eternity? I think because in some cases they're confused. I think in some other cases they're conceited. By that I mean just too full of themselves. They don't want to admit, you know, in any kind of a public setting. They don't want to admit even to a one-on-one conversation with somebody who's trying to help them that, you know, yeah, I, 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 need, I, need, to get, I need to get saved. I hate to admit it, but... Yeah, they're too conceited. They, they're afraid that by admitting that, they're saying, I am a sinner. 
And welcome to the world that we're all in. Welcome. We all are. You're listening to a sinner. And the first step of getting into a relationship with God is saying, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. You cannot get you to God. There's nothing to be confused about. And you don't need to be conceited about it thinking, I don't want anybody to know. We already know. You're a sinner. You say, well, how many sins do I have to commit before God said enough's enough? Well, let me ask you this. How many people do you have to kill before you're a murderer? Just one. How many banks do you have to rob before you're a thief? Just one. How many sins do you have to commit before you're a sinner? Just one. And I'm telling you, none of us in this room have only committed only one sin. The Bible says that what you're going to receive for that sin, for the wages, what your paycheck for your sin is separation from God. It's called death, eternal death. But God has a gift, and it's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some people are conceited. Some people are confused. And in some cases, (coughs) some people are calculating. They're thinking, I don't know when I'm going to die, but just before I do, then... That's when I'll call on God to save me. I'll ask Jesus to save me. Would you hear me tonight? That's a foolish way to live. Every time you say no, it gets easier the next time. Every time God knocks on your heart and he says, I told that preacher to give you an opportunity to accept what I did for you into your life. And you say, "Mm, not now. Maybe later, it gets easier with each passing time. In fact, there may be someone listening online or in this room. You can remember a day when you trembled and you thought, I need to get saved. I need to let somebody help me. And it's not that hard anymore. You've said no several times. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. For thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. What is your life? It's just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. I met a man in Missouri years ago. He was training to be a fireman, but he was already a part of the fire department, kind of in an intern position, 21 years of age, and he was one of those well-built, muscular guys. He was prepared to be a fireman. And he was full of himself, to be real honest with you. He just was just very full of himself. And I said, hey, his name was David. I said, David, I said, man, it's been fun to meet you tonight and to have a good time of activity with you tonight. This has been super. I said, hey, let me ask you something. Are you... Are you prepared for eternity? Do you know that you're, you're going to go to heaven when you breathe your last? He looked at me and he huffed and he said, he says, you guys, he goes, you're all the time talking about heaven and hell. And he said, talking about the Bible. He says, how, how, can, I, <coughs> how can I take you at your word about this? He says, how many people wrote that book that's in your hand? He said, I mean, I mean you know, he said, I, 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 I don't even know what to believe because I don't know that that book is accurate. And I said, 
yeah, yeah. I said, you know, you've, a, you've asked a question that a number, numbers of people have asked before. And I said, I, I can appreciate that. I'd love to talk with you about it. But I said, let's answer this one first. Are you certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die? I just brought him right back to the main thing. I said, are you prepared for eternity? And he said, and another thing. He said, there are churches all over this city. He said, look down the street. And he pointed down the street by, by, by my, behind my back. He said, there's a church down there. He goes, I don't even know what kind of church it is. I didn't either. He, says, he said, you've got your church. And he said, there's dozens of churches around here. He goes, how do you know who's telling the truth and who's not? And isn't it just a gimmick and a gadget to kind of give you a, uh, some kind of a crutch to lean on religiously and so forth? He goes, how do you know what church is right? I said, a lot of people have asked that question. I said, that's a great question. I said, David, has anyone ever shown you from the Bible how you could know that you're ready for eternity? He said, no. I could tell he was not interested. And he could, I could also tell that he was thinking, Gleiser's not going to leave me alone. So he said, no, no one ever has. I said, can I show you what the Bible says? Can I just show you what the Bible says about how you can be prepared for eternity? He said, sure. Go ahead. I took my Bible, my smaller Bible that I had with me at the time, and I showed him in the scriptures that we're all sinners. I, I started with that. I started with the fact that I'm a sinner. And I said, he's a sinner. And I, I said, you know what sin is? Mm-hmm. I said, sin is any kind of disobedience and disloyalty to God and any kind of uh, anything that's against his word and so forth. I said, you understand that? And I showed him, I said, we have all sinned, all of us, all mankind have sinned and we come short of the glory of God. He said, yep. He was looking around while I was talking like he wasn't interested. In fact, what I did was I took my Bible and I, I'd, I'd point out the verse toward him. I'd say, here, let, let me quote this verse and you just follow along right there where I'm pointing. And so I'd read the verse and explain it. And I explained to him that God was holy. And I said, no, look at there. You see that verse right there? God's holy and God can't ignore our sin. Yeah, I said, do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Zero interest. I said, right here it says here that Jesus paid for my sin and your sin. You see, somebody's got to pay for that sin. And if you don't accept what Jesus did in his payment, then you'll pay for your own sin in this place called hell. Look at this verse. And I'd read a verse and explain it. Read a verse and explain it. Read a verse and explain it. Zero interest. And I said, finally, I said, David, thank you. Thank you for giving me some time. I just wanted to, you know, give you something, plant in your heart. And then I thought. I said, David, look. Can I show you just one more verse, maybe? Sure. I turned over to the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, in chapter 5 and verse 11. And I said, now, David, I've been reading these verse. I've been say, quoting these verses while you read them, and then I explain them. I said, we're going to do something different. I said, I want you to read the verse. He said, I, he said, I've never read the Bible. I said, do you know English? <laughs> yeah. I said, e, this is written in English. Can you read? Yes. I said, that's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just read the verse. I said, read that. Verse 11. He said, okay. And this <laughs> is the record that God hath given to us 
eternal life, and this life is in his son. He looked back like, how about that? I said, that's perfect, man. I said, now, instead of me explaining it, you explain it. He said, I don't know. I don't know the Bible. I said, you know words. You know word meanings. Tell me what you think that verse is saying. Okay. This is the record, 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 recorded. He says, okay. He goes, the man who wrote that is talking about the Bible is the, the record, the recording. I said, great. Doing great. Keep going. That God hath given to us eternal life. He said, is that heaven? I said, bingo. I said, son, you're doing super. And this life is in his son. Um, Oh, that's Jesus. I said, I thought you told me that you didn't know how to explain the Bible. He kind of gave me that Barney Fife look of, well, you know. (laughs) I can understand that. I said, you're doing super. Let's take it to the next verse. Read it and explain it. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. He looked back up at me, and I could almost see fire coming out of his nostrils. He was mad. He's mad. He took a step back. He pointed down to my Bible and he said, Why hasn't anybody ever told me that before? I said, Told you what? You haven't explained it to me yet. He said, What that verse is saying? I said, What's it say? It says that if you have the Son of God, Jesus, you get eternal life. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. He is so mad. I'm thinking, Where is this going? Is he still angry with me even bringing it up? And I said, that's exactly what it says. I said, David, do you have Jesus? No. So do you have eternal life? No. I said, do you want Jesus and eternal life? His answer was a classic. He said, of course. Who wouldn't? And listen to this. He said, only a fool would say no to that. David accepted Jesus Christ that night. He's a pastor tonight. He went on to get some Bible college education, left the fire department, pastors a church in Missouri tonight. I used to get emails from him and he'd say, thank you for the night you told me about Jesus. And I've told you about him too. Only a fool would say no to eternal life and salvation like this. Tonight, don't ignore and don't push aside. Don't be confused and conceited and calculating that someday, no, now. Get this thing settled tonight. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. 
And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.